This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I'm your co-host, Rob Hadley, people and culture strategist specializing in DE&I and people analytics. I am joined by my friend, one of my best friends, Nadia Butt, an organizational development and belonging strategist. Nadia, so great to see you. What's going on? Am I really your best friend? Because that's like... I said one of them. Oh, one of them. I'm not the. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> I do call the gas station attendant one of my best friends, too. Oh, boy. So, you know, that's weird. I, I talk I'm about inclusive. To be, am I at least in like tier one, like maybe tier two? You're the one that has tiers. I don't I know. know you. I, I do not. I there's no caste system in my uh, oh, in my friendship a, group. Ooh, I should what a lynch, what a lead, right? That's a great lead. Well, uh, first, I want to say happy one year to Inclusive Collective. Um, March 30th um, was our one year. So Amazing. Uh, happy anniversary to you, to us. Um, what what has been your favorite moment? The favorite moment of the like the, the entire or just thing? like anything from the yeah, from the pot from Inclusive Collective, like overall. So so I think that I think some of my, my you know, my favorite things, obviously having my life partner on is really amazing and Dr. it's a thing Julia that like even even our friends our friends you know bring up and and people you know really like that episode because <laughs> everyone right because it's both of us are uh, getting to talk to each other so so that was awesome and i think i had mentioned i really you know i'm really proud of you know i was thinking about us in relation to other podcasts in this space and i think that the best stuff is is getting the people on and listening to their stories, like the guests that we have, and and just trying to be super guest forward and like really learning about them. And you know, we we've made friends right from yeah. having people on the show and that we can work with, and and um and so that's what's re- really great for me. How about you? Yeah, I mean, same like talking to the guests, but I really really enjoy our raves and rants at the end of our episodes. <laughs> I think. Yeah. It- I think those just continue to like fuel our fire to continue fighting for like equity inclusion in the workplace. Um, and so I really enjoy those, that, that segment of our conversations in addition to everything else, but those are a few of my favorite, I think. Yeah. It's amazing how we flip a coin every week and it just turns out that like every week we flip raves and rants. It yeah, is amazing. Every week. Yeah. Yeah. Shall we get to the deets? Let's do it. Let's do it. Nadia, I'm going to start. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on Chief, the Women's Corporate Private Networking Club. 
Sure. Uh, founded during the pandemic, they raised $100 million in venture funds. They had a valuation of over $1 billion, at least at some point. There are a couple of articles in the New York Times and Forbes this week saying the company was in uh, hot water over exclusionary practices, bias, and a lean toward white feminism. Mm. So this is, I want to get your thoughts. This is, sure. I'm, I'm setting you up here. But first, a couple of things that I, you know, as we as we get into it, first, the hot water of which they speak is based on LinkedIn posts by current and former members, mm-hmm. most prominently a former employee that had a dispute with the company. And so there's really nothing factual in, in terms of an actual policy or an action that took place. Mm-hmm. That, uh, but the questions being raised are questions of intersectional f- feminism, corporate feminism, which is most often white feminism, right? Mm-hmm. And oft- oftentimes. And so I'm going to stop talking, I promise here in a second and, and tee it up for you. Yeah. But to set it up for you, you know, we both together and separately worked in corporations where white women did very well, uh, oftentimes, right? And so right. in my personal experience, I did not always see many of, you know, these white women pulling up others that didn't remind them of themselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm talking to my own perspective and I worked a lot in financial services where everyone looked alike anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, let's talk about Chief, and I'd love to hear your own experiences. In, yeah, in sure. Settings. I mean, so thanks for bringing this up, because I, I read the article, and there were a couple, actually, articles um, on Chief, and I think definitely, it initially, it sounded like it was employees kind of airing their grievances, or members airing mm-hmm. their grievances about the organization online, and I don't want to take away any sort of someone's lived experience or interactions with this organization. I think what's important, though, is also like the facts and the data. Like you both, we both believe in that. Um, I saw like a New York Times article where they um, where they mentioned that the organization's chief's retention rates for women of color this year were at a 4% increase. And some um, women of colors shared their sentiments of which they don't agree with the lack of inclusivity, claims against chief. 33% of its members belong to underrepresented ethnic um, or racial groups. Are those great numbers? Of course, like they could be better, of course, right? Like it's a startup. Um, They, they, you know, what I have also, when I read through the articles, the founders actually made, um, they did issue statements in the wake of racial violence and they publicly donated to abortion access groups. Some of these claims were that they didn't support many of the racial um, social groups groups that were that that are out there, as well as some um, abortion groups or women mm-hmm. um, kind of supporting women um, initiatives. And so, so from what I can from what I can see, it's a startup company, and there's going to be bumps along the road. Mm-hmm. Sure, like mm-hmm. do they have bias? Yes, we all do, right? Are they recognizing their bias and trying to untangle them? Sure. I, you know, could they, could they do better? Of course. Could they, I also took a look at their annual membership and it it costs something like 70, I don't know, 7,900 or $8,000 annually. I think that they could probably reduce that because realistically, you know, I do pretty well for myself. I'm a person of color. (laughs) I can't afford $8,000 to this like, network of of what's appears to be incredible, you know, professional women. Um, I think their product is a really cool idea. I do think that women and people of color, BIPOC, 
folks really do need something like this where there are mm -hmm. opportunities for women's mm -hmm. advancement, their support groups, networking groups. Um, you know, I'm all for that. I'm also all for making sure that it is not biased and that or that people are continuing to focus on mitigating bias and include, you know, focus on driving more inclusion and equity. And part of equity is like, let's take a look. Like, is that real? That's expensive. I don't know, Rob. Like, I would you pay $1,000 to join a networking group? Like, that's a lot of money annually. Um, $100 a month, I'm out. Right? Yeah. Anything more yeah, than that. Doesn't so, matter. Doesn't matter. You know, so what we need is white feminism to be more inclusive and more introspective. And that's like all I can say right now on this matter. What are your thoughts? I appreciate your even-handedness and pointing out that they are a startup. I think that my favorite line in the entire story from the New York Times is that this is now a venture-backed company and the founders need to be listening to their members, mm. their members uh, that are women of color and not necessarily the venture capitalists on how to approach this. And so they, they have a 20,000-person network. They have, they say, 33% that are from uh, underrepresented backgrounds. Just go talk to them, figure out what they need, figure out what their experiences are. And they can solve this and be, you know, the impactful organization for women that you're hoping that they could be. Yeah, that's great. So, all right, what's next? What's next? So according to the B to BBC News, California considers a ban on caste discrimination. So Democratic Senator, um, I think her name is Aisha. It might be Aisha Wahab, a lawmaker, introduced the bill. We talked about this with Seattle, the city of Seattle. Essentially, mm -hmm. the bill will add caste, a division of people related to um, birth or descent, as a protected category in the state's anti-discrimination laws. This will be the first state in the nation. Um, so, like I said, we know cities like Seattle and some universities across the, um, the nation have all, already implemented um, this, this policy. You know, this will really protect folks primarily people of South Asian descent from discrimination in things like housing, education, and even the tech sector um, where they may hold roles. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. good news all around. Yeah. I mean, I think so obviously, so I support it. And I also, you know, there is this side from a business owner perspective that they want no part in enforcing it because they probably aren't that educated about what is happening. Right. Like in, in some of this uh, caste discrimination. Right. In terms yes. of uh, here. And so as a business, I, you know, I, I know I would be not quite certain how to get up to speed on protecting people from a system that, you know, you have less knowledge of. Right. Um, you know, and then you also think about the fact that there's caste systems here. We're just yeah. less uh, they're less codified and established. There's co there's caste systems in every country around the world. And so you know, there is an argument that it will make it harder for South Asians to, to find jobs. I don't know if I take that news. Yeah. If I'm, not not, sure if I'm too if worried about it, especially in California right. and in tech. But, you know, I think it's, you know, legislation like that, you, you'd want to be thoughtful in, in terms of how you enforce it. And I think yes. that, so, so we'll see, we, you know, you and I probably come down on the side of supporting it and just be interesting to see how they would actually implement it and, and enforce it. Yes. We'll follow up with that um, once we get some more information. Well, that's it for the deeds, folks. We will be right back with our guest, Yasin Fall. Go, 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 go. 
At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back, folks. Our guest today is Yasin Fall. Yasin is the co-founder of Hive, a secure data platform connecting data collectors with participants across language and cultural barriers faster. For researchers struggling to collect meaningful data from a more diverse group of participants cost-effectively and efficiently, Hive provides accessible AI technology and data management tools. Yasin is a Master of Science candidate in global health and population science at the Harvard Teach Chan School of Public Health. Her work focuses on maternal and child health and sustainable development, particularly in African contexts. Currently, she is serving on the Lancet Commission for the Future of Health and Economic Resiliency in Africa and and aspires to use technology to bridge the growing climate, conflict, and population needs on the continent. Quite a busy woman. Uh, Yasin, welcome to Inclusive Collective. No, thank you both so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yasin, it's great to meet you. Pleasure to meet you. I did I had the same thought as Nadia was going through your, your uh, bio there, that I'm a little worried about you, and I'm wondering when you have time to do all these things. But so Maybe. let's especially let's, being a student, <laughs> right? right? On top of all. So so let's well, yeah. so we, we had a lot of things to talk about. Let's talk about Hive, uh, your startup, what it does. Just interested in what's the problem that you're you're trying to solve, and and how you uh, you know how you how you came up with this idea. Yeah. Um, again, thank you both so much for having me. I think Hive is definitely a passion project um, that came out of me going through my research training, realizing how many data, how much of a data drought exists in Africa, mm. um, especially, and many just underserved populations, where if you compare the amount of data that comes out of somewhere like the US, China faces, it's really minuscule. And, I'm, and as we know, like, lack of data breeds inequities, lack of data um, makes it so difficult to have like evidence-based practices, um, and I think just like further the, the future of like health 
and development in many countries. So I've came out of wanting to say like, where is the problem? Are we collecting data in the right way? Especially as a researcher, we go through the scientific method and we have these ways of knowing. But then I'm like, I also understand a different way of knowing and being solely through my lived experience as a Senegalese American Muslim woman, where I'm just like, I think that there's something that the world is missing when it comes to collecting data in this region. And I think I have the solution. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yeah. So tell me how, how is Hive related to, or even influenced by your work at Harvard um, School of Public Health? Yeah, so currently at Harvard, um, I'm doing two research projects. One of them is focusing on the experiences of children living with disabilities. And Senegal only just recently um, started collecting actual data on people living with disabilities, which is crazy, right? Because if you're not counted, how are you included? So that was a huge feat um, um, for Senegal. But honestly, it had me thinking about, like, what do we do about these data droughts? How do we scope and understand, like, what are the problems? And I think qualitative research methodologies have been, have been used to try to like get, get, get a scope um, and understand. But how do you understand a place where, especially when you're distant from this place or when you don't even know where to begin? Yeah. And I, what, I, when I, what I believe, what my lived experiences has, has taught me is that the people on the ground know way better than us. And I, that has come from us coming from or people who are really community oriented and who come from this oral tradition where it's just like we, you can tell, I can say, Tell me where the children living with disabilities are on this block. And people can point me to that. Mm-hmm. So I think for they, me, I just walk they, with it. They right. know, right. They know. So I think I walk in with the humility of being like the people know. So one, what we have to do is we have to ask them mm-hmm. in ways that are accessible to them. And secondly, make sure that when we ask them, um, we are making sure we're compensating them for their time. Mm-hmm. Um, research is very it's very there is a power structure in research and often the people who are contributing and allowing us to have such meaningful data they're not they're not get reaping the benefits of that or people don't even come and revisit and say like oh here's what we've done with this information but it's like no this is going to be a collective action this is all for the development of um the country of that of that locale or whatever and we really hope that it can make a difference when it comes to bettering um health and development outcomes on the continent and, and you said you found the answer. I don't know if you can share it with us. You said that you figured out how to do this, right? Because it's obviously to go ask people. It's labor intensive. And so how to use technology to, to be yeah. able to do that. If you can tell us. I don't know if you can tell us. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> the trade <so>, secrets. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think so. What, what, I, what I can share is that we're trying to look at get, getting insights from people locally um, using audiovisual data, first and foremost. Um, and then using the power of AI in order to help translate that data one and then allow it to be readily accessible. Like, sorry, not readily accessible, but allow it to be um, easily managed. So we're both trying to form as both some, uh, a place where people can go to get insights. So we're trying to create a database, a database of people who we have direct access to and can get um, meaningful insights from. Um, whenever we, need, whenever someone has a question relating to them, mm-hmm. but then also allowing on the other end of it, researchers or people who may be practicing, whether they're people in the Department of Health or Finance, whatever it may be, to understand the information easier. Because the one thing about audio visual information is that it can be a lot, it can take up a lot of space, it can be, um, it can just be a lot of data. Mm-hmm. But I think we're at a point where technology allows us to go through data with ease. 
So whether that is going through and pulling for pulling using AI to help pull insights that people might automatically find relevant, or if you had that already coded and someone can go and say, okay, pull out information that refrains that is around demographics or X, Y, or Z. Um, we have the technology to do it, do it. So it's just really meeting these ideas of um, AI with these other ideas of social sciences and how people automatically, how people normally communicate. Yeah, I hope that's helpful. It is very. And actually, just to okay, translate okay. that for any listeners and maybe even you, Rob, just um, what I took away from that is the OG re- people who collect data um, for, for those meaningful insights is the Auntie Network. And yeah. I right, I think when we think about the brown and black auntie network, the community members of the women in those communities, they know what's going on. They like you said, they know who's down the street, who's who's maybe sick or who needs more support. And there's so much knowledge there. Is that is that that's kind of what I'm taking away from from, from yeah. that in terms of collecting that data. Yeah. It is absolutely about the auntie network we are tapping into the auntie network and i think if people have been especially in black and brown areas you know what i'm talking about it's like you're walking in the street and you see this huddle of uncles and aunties you go to them and you ask them questions i'm like that's how we operate that's how it's like you go and you you say oh have you seen this person i literally this is a fun fun story when i was in senegal i was in Dakar, and i was looking i i (laughs) my uncle was not answering his text messages and i remember vaguely where he lives and then I literally asked someone on the street. I kept asking people until I found his house. Oh, really? And I'm just like, yeah. I don't think people understand that is that's not something I can walk down Times Square in New York City and do. But there are so many communities where that's the people are just community oriented and that's how they operate. Yeah. Right. So how do we tap into these networks of people who, who know and we acknowledge the fact that they know and we honor and empower them to the fact that you know and I have information that you need? that can also contribute to our collective health, well-being, and the development of this country or place. So that's like the thesis. <laughs> that's a bread and butter. Love that. The auntie network. <laughs> that's great. I'm curious too, Yasin, what, what about your maybe background, your upbringing brought you into, I know you shared a lot about like what you were seeing and your lived experience, but was there anything else that kind of um, brought you into public health or even into the work with technology and innovation? How has that experience been so far? Yes, um, great question. I think when I think of Hive, I think of it as a passion project only because I think there's so much of who I am that just comes out naturally in this project. Um, And so my co-founder and I, so he is... um, Bengali and African-American and I am technically on both sides and I would say that like growing up I always always knew that my parents always instilled in me that like your duty is to go back to the continent and help Mm -hmm. it's to go back in the continent and help and I knew that like I mean through growing up you know I just learned that there are ethical ways of what that can look like but I think that there was always this duty of like okay I have to go back and go back with humility and it was through that humility that I was able to learn and see like, okay, how do, what are the differences between the way that I grew up here and the way that people operate there? So that's one. But two, just thinking from my public health background, Africa by 20, 20, 2050 will have half of the world's children. Mm. It is a growing and booming continent. And when you think about all of the health needs, I'm like, every time you hear about something around food, water, like you name what 
problem. People always look at Africa and are, and are saying like Africa needs help, right? But I'm like, what we don't talk about is that solely if we rely on like the infrastructure of people, we will not have enough people to meet the needs of Africans. So for me, all automatically, I was like, there has to be an incorporation of technology because we just, we won't have enough time mm. to train yeah. 20 year, like train physicians for 20 years so that they can, that we can have the the health, you know, the the infrastructure to have enough physicians, have enough like um, social workers and all these people. So I'm just like, how can we have to be thinking? I always thought of like, we have to be thinking about how we can use technology in order to meet the needs of this the booming billions of people we have in the world. Kind of like, like, okay, I need everybody to just get on board because this is just what you said. Yeah. <laughs> we, we don't have enough time. Yeah. And I'm like, in, in many ways, it feels like a crisis because of the way that generational, um, generational poverty works and how like easily if this family is not educated or this family does not have access to getting finances, you're going to have more and more people exponentially going and needing more assistance, needing more aid. And like we, before we get to that point, we need to come up with solutions that are innovative and that can allow us to meet the needs of the growing populations of the world. Um, and yeah, it needs to incorporate technology for that reason. And you're raising money for your solution, right? And, and so just tell me as you've embarked on those conversations, what have been some of the challenges in, in uh, either with investors or just in communicating the need uh, to, to folks as you are trying to trying to build a company? Um, that's a great question because, and, and, and also I think this highlights a general challenge of being from my background and wanting to come into the entrepreneurship space. Mm -hmm. um, one, p social scientists and even researchers are not encouraged. We're encouraged to come up with solutions through research, implement it through research, um, and that takes time and, it, and it is a very rigorous process for a reason, right? Because we need to make sure that if we're going to say that something standard, it can be applied in different places and it's like, um, it's rigorous. What I would say is that we don't prepare people from my background to go into entrepreneurship. Um, and that was a challenge and me even being able to have the language of like, how do people in business talk? How, if you're looking for money, like, right, we don't even use. People talk about seed funding. It's like a whole new dictionary you need yeah. into the entrepreneurship space, right? But like, I don't have like business people in my family. So who teaches me that language? You need to be in a place where you're like, okay, I think that business or the private sector is the solution. And then finding mentors mm -hmm. who can understand like, okay, here's where you are and here's where you need to be. And here are the gaps. So learning the language of like what I need. Because it's like, okay, I have an idea. What's next? And that I literally at every step of the way, I kept saying, what is next? What is next? What is next? Just because I don't know. I didn't walk in knowing the direction. So I would say being able to one, find the mentors who can understand me, understand where I'm coming from, um, and then help me in filling in those gaps. I would say my co-founder has been, you know, amazing for that reason, because he does have a lot of the technical expertise around like how do business, how does business work? How does um, uh, uh, a tech, a technology-based platform work. But then again, we still had gaps in like, how do we get from there to being like, I want to have a project that is scalable um, that can raise money, as you said. So being able to also say the right things around the right people has been another <laughs> thing. Because yeah, sure. I say solution, someone else says innovation. We're talking yeah. about the same thing. We have different wor words in different sectors. But honestly, even the use of the term research when describing Hive, 
was something we had gone back and forth about, gone back and forth about. And the way that I've settled with it is that when I say research, I mean that in the most broadest way possible. You can conduct research, whether you're in business, whether you're in, um, I mean, what they say, market research, you know, but we're all talking about how do you collect data? Like data. How do you get yeah. insights from people? Um, so language has been been a huge um, barrier, but also like learning process. And, you know, we're getting there. We're getting there. But I think that like right now we're in a more comfortable space. We're thinking about like, OK, what we know and what any, maybe everyone can agree upon is that most people want to figure out how do we collect data in real time from global communities. That's great. Yasin, uh, to that to that note, like has there been any networks or kind of organizations that have provided you the support and networking and kind of resources to help you folks move forward? Yes. Yes. So I am a part of the Harvard Innovation Lab and the Harvard Innovation Lab has been absolutely amazing. There is there are literally this wealth of knowledge and they meet you where you are. And I could walk into meetings with any of the staff or any of their, like, they also have, like, people who they invite who are, like, guests, um, um, business men and women you can come and speak to. Um, and you ask, ask them any question. And I can ask them any question. And they know, and they encourage also people from, like, other schools, whether they be in, like, I don't know, the School of Public Health and may not have, like, a, a huge entrepreneurial background. They encourage us to come with our ideas. And you can start from zero and like build up an idea. So that has been an amazing and beautiful resource that I would recommend to all students who can get involved um, with the Innovation Lab. And then they also have funding. So they've also been like the main source of my funding, especially for getting some of my pilots off the ground. And without that, like, I'm like, I don't know how we would have been able to do some of our pilots. So it's nice to have people, an institution, I would say, that allows you to have that like play playground when yeah. it comes to your ideas and it's really fun it's really fun that's fantastic yeah yeah yes and i'm just curious you talked a little bit earlier about some of the health equity challenges or just <laughs> i should say health challenges on the african continent and to just and and yeah. some of the technological innovations that you think will be helpful in solving and meeting some of those challenges so tell me more what what are some of the things that make you optimistic or uh, things that you're looking to in terms of uh, technology that can drive better health outcomes uh, around the world. I am very excited when it comes to the future of AI and what it can do in health. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the pandemic accelerated us 10 years when it comes to just getting people to believe in this idea that online can work. Um, so for example, when it, what does it look like to have online, I mean, not online, but being able to see a physician who may not be in your area because you live in a further, um, a more rural, suburban era, area, and have being able to speak to a physician through a screen. Like different things. I've, I'm, I've been seeing different examples of innovation um, on the continent that has been really inspiring right now. But honestly, I think the reason I focus on data is because I do believe that data is like the backbone of what we know now and where we should go. Mm. It needs to be informed by data. So if I believe that, like, I hope that we can get to a place where we can collect data that is more representative of the people who are on um, in different countries, both small and large. I'm talking any, everywhere from Burundi all the way to Nigeria. There are different needs and we need, I think we need more entrepreneurs in general 
just because we are Africa is such a diverse continent. Of course. You know, so there isn't enough there isn't enough like there's no way I can stress how much we just need the entrepreneurship in general. Like needing people to come and like come up and looking at the context and saying, like, okay, here's the solution that I think can work. Let me try it. Because I'm like, it's such a fresh playing, like playground where I'm like, there are these new people who are aspiring to come to the continent and like expand. But I'm like, there's so much need. I'm like, everybody just come and just have an idea. Um, obviously, that has to be ethical. And I think it has to be honoring the fact that there is so much beauty that exists already on the continent. And we need solutions that work for Africans. It needs to be for Africans, by Africans. I think when you do that, you can have solutions that can truly benefit the world because of how diverse we are. I love that. I, f- I feel just stressing that we can't generalize that, you know, folks that live in um, South Africa have the same needs as someone living in Nigeria. Um, you know, mm-hmm. they're just just kind of the stereotype that I feel like, has, unfortunately, in America, we tend to think like Africa is one continent where everybody has the same needs, similar disparities. And that's not the case. Um, so I absolutely love you uh, kind of sharing that with us and, and highlighting that. Yes. And can you give our listeners one resource that you would recommend uh, related to either what you've been talking about um, or diversity, equity, inclusion in general? What's something that you would love to share with our mm. listeners? Oh, that is such a good question. Um, there are so many research resources related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, one of the things I think in light of Ramadan, um, some, I would, I, because I'm Muslim and I am proudly Muslim and everyone, I think it in, dedicate, impacts every, every aspect of my life. Um, yeah. So for people who are working with Muslims, I think it's very important, especially when you are working with people from different backgrounds, oftentimes we like to look at the appearances of what that person looks like and not realize that like, no, Muslim, my Muslimness impacts everything from the way that I think to the way that I act and stuff like that. And one of the resources that I really uh, recommend is the Qalam Institute. I think that they have a lot of great resources for understanding the experiences of Muslims and having more information about like what is um, Ramadan. And also Yakin is another one that I really, really love. I love Yakin. Um, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Yakin is really awesome. And I think that they produce really, really great uh, info infographics. So um, for people who are trying to learn more about like Muslims and like how you can support Muslims, whether it be in your office, on, in your in your workspace, or your friend, um, as we're going to the month of Ramadan, I think there's nothing that warms my heart more than seeing people who um, understand more about like what is Ramadan and how can I support Muslims, whether that be like, okay, we're fasting and how can I join them or take part for Iftar. Very, very beautiful things. I think this is a beautiful time for community. But yeah, there are resources that are available that can really help. Great. Thank you for sharing that. Yes, and Fall, incredible work that you're doing with Hive. Thank you so much for joining us this week on Inclusive Collective. We wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Stay with us, folks. We will be right back with our reflections and Raves and Rants. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage 
all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome back. We just finished speaking with Yasin Fall of Hive. Nadia. Mm. What do you what are your thoughts? So great to meet Yasin. Super impressive so great. She's, person. She really is impressive. She's doing so much. Um and, and on top of it in school. Um, I, I love her idea. I I think that there's so much to be said. I mean, I, I kind of joked about like anti network, but it's so true and that there is so much information that I think either gets missed in collecting or there's you know, bias in the researcher or the person collecting information um, that gets missed or misinterpreted. And so I really love this idea of really using this, you know, technology and AI to really understand, better understand what the needs are um, of particular communities, especially when it comes to healthcare and, um, you know, kind of closing the gap on disparities. So I love this idea. I love that she's running with it and really wish her the best of luck. Well, where yeah, are some you, of your takeaways? Same, same to all. And I think I was just thinking about the fact that you asked me at the beginning of the show, what I liked about doing the show over there, things that are memorable. And I think that's a, Yasin provided a great example of the fact that I get to meet awesome people that are, that I probably, or might not have been able to meet otherwise and sure. people that are changing the world for the better. Right. And so hopefully, yes. uh, you know, Wish her the best of success. So happy to, to get to chat with Yasin today. Absolutely. Nadia. Yep. You it's know what time, time it is. Rom. Yeah. Wait. <laughs> time for ra- right. Rants and Raves. Rants and Raves. And I, I am on the uh, coin flip that you we do. Did? I drew yeah. the rant, right? You you drew the rant. I drew the rant. So, rant I, today, so I got to start. And so you didn't, you didn't see this, but there, there's no words to describe what a miss this is. And I think okay. that you'll just be appalled. And everyone involved in this should be fired. I know you believe in redemption, but n- not in this case. The with, Levi's, with, yeah. you, so Levi's, oh, the jeans, the jeans okay. company, uh, yeah. you know, announced as part of their DEI efforts that they would be working with the Dutch company to create AI generated models to enhance their diversity, right? So, okay. so in order to have diverse models on their online and, and also their print publications, they're just going to create them. Kind of like, they're gonna build them instead of actually seeking. Yeah, yeah. They couldn't find actual uh, models, uh, folks that are underrepresented, so they had to create them in a on a computer. And um, you know, obviously, you could think that this did not get a positive reaction. And I, I, I actually thought it was fake. I, I still think someone could be messing with me. I've been looking at a lot of different news sites to confirm this, and I think it's something they actually. You know, the thing that blows my mind is that they led with it. They announced it. they were proud of their of the of the way they right. thought this through. This is a real thing. So I yeah, yeah you have to check it out, Nadia. It's 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 a it's a mind blower. 
it's it's like unreal that that's the avenue we're going down. It's like, oh, technology and AI. And it's like, well, we have people that can do that work. And they exist, really, right? Yeah, They're everywhere. They um, it's just another way to kind of not pay someone <laughs> of an underrepresented community. It's terrible. Yeah, yeah. No, they're not they're not AI generating uh white models as far as I know. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that rant. Good rant. Um let's let's ha- end on a happier note here. So Please. it is um, you know, it's Ramadan, so I'm loving that I can highlight a few of my fellow Muslim brothers and sisters. Two things to celebrate here. Last week, Nadia Kaf became the first hijab-wearing Superior Court judge in the U.S. Um, her story in the making. Uh, she is American Syrian. She took her oath on a copy of the Quran inherited from her grandmother. She is the third Muslim woman to serve as U.S. Superior Court judge. Um, and then also last week, Hamza Youssef was sworn in as the first minister of Scotland, becoming the first Muslim head of government. Mm-hmm. Hamza is of Pakistani descent. Uh, just ending, you know, this this rave here that representation matters across the globe. And really excited to see these two people step up into um, into their positions. Yeah, we spoke to Mohammed Missouri last week about getting Muslims elected in this country. And so there's uh, those those efforts are working, right? Yes. Bringing it back full circle for us, Rob. Love I'm, it. <laughs> I'm also becoming a professional, you know, some well, semi-professional over the course of these episodes. So that is it for our show today, Nadia. Inclusive Collective is a production of Rebellion Media. We'd love to hear from you as always. Please send us your feedback at inclusivecollective at refillion.com. You can find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. If you like what you heard, please uh, make sure to subscribe and rate us. Rate us uh, and, and wherever you get your podcast. If you want to get in touch with us for consulting, check out Nadia at nasconsultants.com, Rob at TicanoConsulting.com. I am hosting the DEI and Metrics Measurement and Reporting Masterclass on May 11th. Please check it out at climatefordei.com. Thanks again to our guest, Yasin Fall of Hive. We'll be back next week. Bye, Nadia. Be well.